Again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and I'm so pleased to welcome in my special guest today, Dr. Pam Moran. Pam just completed a 43-year career in public education. She served the last 13 years as superintendent of the Albemarle County School District in Virginia. Pam was named that state's 2016 Superintendent of the Year. She's also the co-author of a new book entitled Timeless Learning, How Imagination, Observation, and Zero-Based Thinking Change Schools. From makerspaces to technology in schools, Pam Moran has always been on the front end of innovation as she changes our school systems. So sit back and enjoy this special conversation with my friend, Pam Moran. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Reimagined Schools podcast. My special guest today is an old friend and a fantastic superintendent and school leader, Dr. Pam Moran. How are you doing, Pam? Oh, Greg, I'm, I'm doing wonderfully. It's a beautiful day here in Central Virginia. We've had more than our fair share of rain this, uh, this year, this season, and so it's a beautiful day, and I'm just excited to be with you because I've admired the work that you've done, both as a leader inside a school district but also as somebody that's informing the national conversation around how do we affect the changes that our kids need in the work that we're trying to do today to educate them for their world and not for our world. And when it comes, and when it comes to that national conversation, Pam Moran has been right there at the top as a former state superintendent of the year uh, in Virginia. Uh, You've always been one of those highly innovative forward thinking school leaders and uh, congratulations. I know you just retired after a long career uh, there in Virginia, uh, serving for a long time in the uh, Albemarle County School District in Virginia, and uh, really a culmination of 43 years start to finish. So congratulations on a wonderful career. Thank you. And I, I'll have to tell you, Greg, because you know that across the nation that the tenure of superintendents is not very long, and I had 13 wonderful years in Albemarle, but I was talking to the uh, the uh, head of uh, the, uh, the Virginia Association of School Superintendents recently, and they really track data on the superintendents in Virginia. He said, Pam, when we subtract you from the database, it's going to lower our average tenure significantly. <laughs> We've had a lot of turnover as the, uh, uh, the folks like me that have white hair have moved out of uh, their jobs in Virginia as superintendents that we've had a much younger group coming in and they're not staying with the longevity that, that some of the older generation have stayed. So it's a, it's, a little, it's a little scary to me because one of the things that I've learned in my 13 years is that change is not something that happens overnight in a school. It takes time. You know that. Yeah. And, and I know that uh, I guess June 30th was probably your last day in your district. I don't know if I read your personal blog or if someone else online uh, decided to write something, but uh, I read somewhere where you, you kind of walked us through what your last day looked like, and you visited schools that day, which just really warmed my heart. Well, I have to tell you that, uh, you know, I've always defined, and I had a, a wonderful mentor early on in life as an administrator who said, Pam, the, the day time is for the people, and the paperwork time is after the, the folks have all gone home. And so I've always really tried to prioritize getting out in schools, seeing what teachers are doing, 
talking with teachers, talking with kids, talking with principals. I had a student share with me, one of our schools um, did a, an event for me towards the end of the year, and they chose to have kids in the high school come in and talk with me about their experiences and memories of, of uh, times that we've interacted. And this one young woman shared that when she was in sixth grade that she heard uh, the kids all heard, oh, Ms. Moran's coming to visit today. The superintendent's coming to visit today. It was early in the school year. And um, she said everybody was in a buzz about it. And she said kids in our class were sneaking out to find out who is this Ms. Moran. And she said, all of a sudden, you came to our door and you came in. And she said, I've seen a lot of people come and go looking in our classrooms over the years. She said, but you came in and you sat down and you talked to us and asked us questions. And she said, I'll never forget that. And I thought, I have no memory of going in that classroom and sitting down and talking to that specific group of kids. I do that a lot. But it struck me that we never know, Greg, what we do in any given day, in any given moment, that causes kids to have a perspective on what education's about and who we are as leaders and what's important, what matters. So that was really important to me to hear that story because I thought, wow how many times have I interacted and never assumed that anybody would remember that, but she did. Yeah. And, and like I said, the fact that you spent that last day of school, uh, visiting schools, talking to, to staff members, teachers, kids, yeah. uh, again, that was just a wonderful thing. And, and, and we kind of, uh, you know, whenever we end something, we also have uh, opportunity to reflect on the beginning. And, and you shared a, a wonderful story with me off air before we came on about your first day. If you go back uh, 43 years to day one, uh, you weren't really sure if you were going to make it, were you? No, I wasn't. I, I was, uh, uh, it was interesting because I was a student teacher uh, in South Carolina. I graduated from Furman University in South Carolina. I had a student teacher who was a chemistry teacher and a biology teacher. And one of her parting um, uh, comments to me in terms of advice was, Pam, now remember on your first day, you want to go in and do something that really gets the kids excited about science. Because if you can get them in the first 38 seconds to be excited, they're going to be with you for the rest of the year. So I took that to heart. I really uh, spent a lot of time in field biology in college. And so I, I thought I was going to be maybe chasing snakes around in the Everglades. I was really interested in herpetology. So I had some snakes at home and I grabbed a small garter snake and thought, well, I'll take this in, put it in a pillowcase, tied it up. I'll use it as an inquiry lesson at the beginning because I knew the snake would be moving around a little bit. So there I am in the front of the room holding my pillowcase, asking the kids questions to get them to try to figure out what's in the bag. And I realized at some point that they weren't getting to where I wanted them to be. So I thought, well, let me see if I can pull him out a little bit. So I untied the pillowcase. Of course, you can imagine, first day, my hands were really sweaty. I have the garter snake in my hands, and I'm pulling him out of the bag. And all of a sudden, he slips from my hands. Greg, this is just, I mean, it's just like, I couldn't believe this happened. He caught on my hand, just as I was saying to the kids, don't worry. He doesn't bite. The next thing I know, because they have really sharp slivers of teeth, I'm bleeding. I have blood dripping to the floor. The kids go into chaos. So if you talk about getting their attention in the 30, first 30 seconds, it was done. I had, I don't want to stereotype boys, but the boys were all offering to come up and kill him. The girls were screaming and climbing on chairs. That moment, the principal 
opens the door. I'm sure he heard the commotion. He doesn't say a word. There I am in the room. I get the kids settled down. He closes the door and leaves. Now I'm in big debt for, you know, because I was a country kid and I had to extend a lot of loans to get myself through college. I'm imagining calling my mother to tell her I've been fired today, <laughs> you know, and I just, it's, I just thought this is over. I'm, I'm done. It wasn't too much later in the morning that the secretary for the principal comes and knocks on the door and says, Mr. So-and-so wants to see you at the end of the day. I go in there at the end of the day, spending the whole day thinking I'm going to get fired. I walk in, I sit down with him. It's one of the most, the most pivotal moments in my career was on my first day of school. He says to me, so if you had this to do over, what would you do differently? We talked a little bit and I said, well, I probably wouldn't bring a snake in. He said, that would probably be good judgment on your part. I look at him at some point and I say to him, I thought you were going to fire me. And he looked at me and he said, if I fired you, how would you ever learn to teach? And that for me set in motion a belief system that we talk about a lot today about people's fails. My biggest fail that I can think about in my entire career happened in that first 15 minutes of teaching because I could have lost my job in some schools, but I landed with somebody, had a belief system. Yeah, people make mistakes. Let's figure out how to have you not make this mistake again. And yeah. so that changed my, my life in terms of thinking about kids and the fact that kids make mistakes, teachers make mistakes, parents make mistakes, superintendents make mistakes. So it's been, it's been a, a real, it was an informative moment. And you know, that's, that's a perfect segue into your career as a school administrator because you were one of the first uh, superintendents that I followed on Twitter that was really out there talking about uh, shaking things up, changing things, creating better schools for kids. And, and one of the things you always say is we have to create a culture of yes. And the easiest thing for a superintendent or principal to do is to say no and shoot down those ideas. But if you had a teacher come to you and say, hey, I want to break out a, a, a snake on the first day of science class, as a superintendent, my guess would be you would embrace that with open arms because you Absolutely. want that culture of yes. Absolutely. I might ask a few questions to try to shape it up so it didn't end up in the chaos I created. But that's one of the things that, that you do when you take on the role as an administrator or a teacher leader position is you have to become a coach to help people figure out how to get their ideas. I'll tell you, this same administrator uh, said to me when I became um, a um, young associate principal, and I, I continue to have dialogue with him across my entire career until, and sadly, he died. Um, and I was invited by the family to do the eulogy for him at his funeral. But one of the things he said to me early on is I came to him and I said, you know, I got this teacher wants to do this crazy thing, um, not use, um, uh, literacy anthologies and she wants to use novels in her classroom what do you think about that i'm thinking that sounds a little crazy because we have all these textbooks he said pam i'm just going to tell you if a teacher comes to you with an idea if you say no to them believe this not only will she not come back to you she's going to go out and tell 10 other people and they'll never come with their ideas either figure out how you can help her do this and that is how I got to the, the yes culture model. And, you know, it doesn't mean that everything that people want to do, you can always do. Sometimes I'll say to people, we got to put that in a parking lot. But the other thing I've really learned over time is from that, that yes model is that if you say yes to an individual, 
oftentimes the work that they do to innovate up work um, to implement a, a bright idea will stay in their classroom. But if you encourage them by asking, who else could you get to get involved in this project? The next thing you know, you've got you know, more than just one person at the table who may build some investment in that. And that's how things go viral. Things don't oftentimes go viral from people working in isolation from each other. They go viral from people working with each other. And so that's been a real goal of mine as a superintendent is how do you get more than one person around the table when somebody has a bright idea? Um, I went through the same recession that everybody else in the United States went through. The other thing I had to learn through in that recession era is how do you cut budgets and cut them significantly and yet continue to innovate up the work? And so, you know, over that period of time, I, I cut millions of dollars. I think in one year I had to cut somewhere around $10 million out of the budget, but turned around and we added art staff, we added counseling staff, we uh, implemented uh, uh, changes in learning spaces, you know, we shifted to an instructional coaching model. Um, and, and it didn't happen by adding money to the budget, it happened by uh, changing the way we used money and leveraging resources to do the things that we wanted to do. And so there's actually a, a section in, in the book that we've just rolled out on how do you get to yes, but how do you also make sure that whatever you're trying to do has a really great chance of success. The more people you have at the table is one way. The other is leveraging up resources. And then lastly, how do you not take on such a big chunk of change um, in terms of change agency that you actually set up the idea to fail? So the other thing I've learned, and some of this has come from, uh, uh, you know, making mistakes in, in terms of the scope of what you can actually accomplish. How do you scale it down to a place where you can prototype an idea and figure out if we're going to have things that, that probably aren't going to work as we go through this change process, how can you keep the mistakes at such a small level that the impact doesn't take the idea or the innovation out of the realm of being able to accomplish it? Because one of the things I've seen school districts do across the country is try to really implement something at such a, a significant level of change that what you end up with, quite frankly, Greg, are big fails that become newspaper headlines, Ed Week headlines, and the next thing you know, um, that superintendent's gone, and they're probably not going to be able to, in that school district, revisit that idea for years to come. So I've tried to, to really learn by doing and to share that with, with young superintendents of, you know, how do you get things to change, but you set up risk that can be mitigated so that you don't end up with such a big fail that you lose the idea. And you referenced the book, so uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. You are the co-author of a new book that's going to be released, I believe, August 7th. Uh, yes. So it's just going to be next week. The name of the book is Timeless Learning, How Imagination, Observation, and Zero-Based Thinking Change Schools. And you collaborated with a couple of different people on this book. Co yeah. So can yeah. you talk about your relationship with Ira and Chad a little bit? Sure, I sure can. And I'm, I'm really sorry that they're not able to be with me today because – they're still working and we actually are having a blackout week this week, which means that it's a good time for them to be away from their jobs because we're trying to, to not have people in school so that the custodians and building services can do the work they need to do. But um, one of the things that, that's, um, that's really interesting is that I've, Chad and Ira both connected initially with staff inside Albemarle County, not with me, but inside Twitter. 
And Chad was working as an educator in uh, sort of South Side Virginia, um, down in the, the southwest edge of Southwest Virginia, um, in a, a little place called Martinsville that um, had been through significant um, losses of its manufacturing um, sort of center that, that had, the town was a thriving town. And Chad watched it go from being a thriving Southern town with a manufacturing base to losing all of that and having one of the, the biggest unemployment rates in the United States. Um, he was working in that and uh, trying to work on an, an MBA at the same time that, that he was working with schools and doing some things outside of school. He actually started a blog called Edgerati Review um, and had connected people from all over the country. Some of the early best bloggers that we had were blogging for him at Edgerati Review. So I've, he, he had a connection to Albemarle through some people on Twitter, um, got connected to me through those people, and I invited him to come up and talk. And we were looking at a, a new position that was um, really going to take a look at innovation around 2010. How do we leverage up um, really deep innovation? And so he came in and uh, uh, applied for the job, got the job, and immediately started uh, shifting some of the work that we were doing around career and technical education. We had some of the, the, the first systemic mechatronics labs and middle schools in the country came from him. He also was instrumental in working with a team to help uh, write a, uh, an I-3 STEM grant to USDOE. We got that, and that helped us put resources in, collab with the University of Virginia. So he's had a real... Um, trajectory of being a person who I would describe as the quintessential edu entrepreneur. He just sees opportunities and figures out how do you turn what may be a beyond the high rise and opportunity into something that makes a real difference for kids. You know, was he and I were together um, really brought maker education into Albemarle County. Ira, on the other hand, was at Michigan State working on a doctoral degree um, in ed tech and um, uh, again was connected with some educators inside the system and his background was interesting because Ira had some background working um, um, in the 1980s in the New York uh, Police Department. He also had some background working with uh, special education um, in Michigan uh, around universal design for learning and, and accessible technologies which was an area of interest for me. And he also had um, uh, worked in a program at Pratt Institute in New York in architecture. So he had this really unique portfolio of skill sets. And I said, I'd love to have you come walk schools with me sometime. He came down. I was really pretty excited about what he was going to see. And he said to me, he said, Pam, you know, I think that you have a lot of kids that are pretty bored in class. And I said, how would you know that? And he says, well, you know, educators tend to look at what's going on above the tabletop with kids. He said, I tend to look under the table and what I see are a lot of kids that are very fidgety who are spending time doing, you know, some things that, that they're staying busy and some of it's pretty interesting work and some of it's, you know, pretty typical work. But he said, you know, I think that, I think there's some things that you could do that get kids out of the dominant teaching wall um, work that, that goes on in a lot of classrooms, you know, not all. So we started working together and he uh, ended up doing some, some consultation with us, and I described him as a provocateur. Ira takes no prisoners. He asks really tough questions. He pushes people's thinking. He pushed my thinking, and eventually um, 
uh, came to work in our tech department um, with learning technology and right now was just appointed by the current new superintendent, uh, Dr. Matt Haas, as the uh, chief tech and innovation officer for Avonmore County. So he's now running the whole department. And I laugh and say, you know, that started with Twitter, but the reality is those guys had to really prove themselves in terms of the boots on the ground work. And they filled very different roles. Um, and that's why, you know, as we were, were working the work and, you know, we would have folks like the folks from Maker Education would come. We had people coming from all over the country to see what we were doing in schools, whether it was with uh, our mechatronics labs or Maker Education or instructional coaching work uh, that came out of our instruction department, the technology work, things like that, digital learning, that as people were coming people kept saying, why aren't you writing this up? And we said, we're just too busy to write, you know, because we're trying to do the work. We don't have the time to write the work. A couple of years ago, I looked at the guys and I said, you know, I think that, that we really have something pretty special here that has been going on since, you know, 2002, really, in Albemarle was when we started pushing back against No Child Left Behind. Um, but for this last eight years, we've really changed the game in libraries and classrooms and hallways and uh, cafeterias just all over the schools. Physical fitness programs supported up to uh, be much more responsive to kids um, versus old style 20th century PE. And I said, you know, I think that I think that we have a story to tell and it's not our story. We have been the facilitators of this work. This is the story of educators across the system and kids across the system and the community that has embraced a quality of change that's very different than you see pretty much anywhere in the United States. And so it was district work. It wasn't, you know, as Edutopia, who came and did some videos with us, um, to, they, they started out, they wanted to document a school. They ended up documenting multiple stories inside the school division. And one of the folks from Edutopia said, you know, what makes this different for us is that usually we find a teacher in a classroom or maybe it's a team or a department or a school, but to find a school district affecting this level of deep change is very unusual. And so they ended up doing, uh, I guess they ended up with three or four videos and blog posts from us and so forth, just taking a look at, at some of the, the qualities of change inside our schools. And I, I, all of a sudden I realized when they were here, oh, this is about a big focused change that if these guys don't see it, then maybe we do have a story to help others. And that's where the book came from. Yeah, and, and I, love, I love the title of the book, Timeless Learning. And if you could, could you kind of dive in and talk about what zero-based thinking means to you and, and your co-authors there in your school district? Yeah, I will. Um, you know, one of the things that we, we we've have focused on is that um, – and this is where the, the whole history piece that's embedded in this book comes from. And that is that, you know, that, that prior to the 20th century, you had one room schoolhouses around the country that operated very differently than the cells and bells or factory schools that, that emerged in the 20th century in response to the urbanization of this country. Um, and in the, the book, um, uh, the cult of, of efficiency, um, one of the things uh, that uh, Ray Callahan talked about is that we created schools that were labeled as efficient and effective because they were easy to administer, they were cheap to operate, and they all had the same outcomes um, 
based on that committee of 10 work, no matter where you were in the United States. And that what you had then was a very reductionist focus. Um, Zero-based thinking says, what happens if we subtract all of those um, structures and procedures and um, ways of doing business that developed over time in the 20th century, and we get back to what we believe are the natural uh, ways that humans learn. That, you know, I sometimes say that I like to think that the first teacher that stood on the side of a stream with a stick millennia ago um, as a teacher uh, drawing in the sand along a stream, that that person was using strategies that our best teachers use today. And it's about, for me, timeless learning and zero-based thinking is how do you get back to those strategies that humans use to learn in ways that allow learning to stick with them for a lifetime and not just to pass test. So zero-based thinking is what would a classroom look like if it wasn't set up to be the dominant teaching wall and desk and rows of the 20th century? You know, what, what would it look like if the goal was to actually have kids actively engaged and in power in terms of their learning versus passively um, engaged with the teacher having all the power over the learning? What would that look like? And so we started to see teachers say, well, it wouldn't look like desks and chairs and, you know, a bulletin board on the side of the room and a uh, today an LCD projector projected on a white board or a smart board or whatever. It would look like kids all over the room working together and they would be working in the way that's comfortable to them. They would have a lot of choices and we would be um, working with them very differently as teachers. So that's a, a really simple example of zero-based um, uh, thinking is how do, you, how do you say if we emptied this cafeteria of these long tables that are institutional and some of our teachers refer to them as the, the prison system tables where kids are in long lines, what would it look like if kids were able to have lunch that was more of a, uh, a family based experience for eating, although I wouldn't describe that as being the current day's uh, model for many families. And so one of the things that we did was we said, let's replace all those cafeteria tables and we couldn't do it all in a year. But over time, what we did was we brought in round tables, chairs, because as one of the teachers said, you know, we have all these one size fits all little stools attached to these tables. And we have big kids and little kids in fourth grade and they, these seats fit almost nobody. It's that, um, uh, kind of focus on that they build furniture for the average, but in most classrooms, that means only a few kids actually fit <laughs> the furniture, including in the cafeteria. So we made changes and, and went back to what we called family style. How do kids learn to have conversations with other people? How do they learn some of the things that allow them to have a social learning experience in the cafeteria? And we didn't see it happening at those institutional tables. So, you know, it's kind of that idea of how do you empty your school or your cafeteria or your classroom of the traditions of the 20th century and ask the question, if we were building this from the ground up, how would it be different? What would we do differently? What would we keep? What would we not keep? And in some cases there are great things that you would keep, but it's more than just furniture. It's about things like that we, we know, you know, in the brain research of recent uh, decades certainly points this out. People don't learn from listening to somebody lecture at them or even learn deeply from repetitive tasks such as multiplication 
uh, four times four or 10 times 10 on a, a worksheet, people learn from experience. Storytelling builds experience. Hands-on activities build experience. Getting outside and using what you're learning in the real context of life builds experiences. And those are the experiences that transfer learning forward, not teaching to a test and having kids literally 48 hours later lose much of what they were prompted to be able to, to regurgitate on a test or not. And so that's one of the things that we've really gone after too, is how do we, how do we shift the pedagogy to what you might call the natural learning processes of human beings that the best teachers have always used. Some of the most incredible history teachers that I've ever known are the best storytellers. They could take their show on the road because kids remember their stories, but they don't remember their PowerPoints. So making the, you know, really trying to think about how do you, how do you shift pedagogy, curriculum, assessment, learning space, and the tools kids use. And, and I think about, you know, that one of the things that I think is probably um, the most difficult challenge of today is that we're kind of sitting in this turning point tension between um, tools of, of the tradition. And I describe tools as being a book as a tool, um, a piece of furniture as chair as a tool, a uh, pencil as a tool. And then we have these new tech tools that are devices and in some cases uh, applications. How do kids learn to choose the tool that they need to do the work that they're setting out to do? And if you limit those tools, if all you do is say, well, we're a one-to-one -one district and that's what we're about is kids are gonna learn to use laptops or devices, tablets, whatever. And these other tools are not really of use anymore. What you're doing is you're subtracting from kids opportunities to see tools as a continuum. My home, and you can see it, the people that will listen to this won't be able to, but is a, uh, a post and beam home that my husband was a, a, a um, uh, worked in a, a company that built post and beam houses. And this house, the tools that he used were planes and uh, old boring machines to drill holes in the wood by hand. Um, at some point in time, his company decided that that was really cool to do but that it was not real cost effective. So they started using uh, uh, more high-tech tools to help get their post and beam uh, frames up. But I think about that our kids need to be able to understand that tools are what humans choose to accomplish the work that they're going to accomplish. And so that's one of the things that we've really gone after is saying in a mechatronics lab, we want kids to be able to use drills and saws and glue guns and so forth. It's not just about 3D printing or VR technologies and so forth. And all those things are important for kids in this century, you know, because they can do things with contemporary tools that we couldn't have envisioned, Greg, you and I, 20 years ago. And that's important. It's wonderful that we have those tools. But I also think it's pretty cool that we have kids learning how to uh, use uh, um, chop saws and uh, power saws and, and uh, drills because you know, we, we took all of that out of education when we went down that, that huge no child left behind testing path and said, you know, we're going to subtract shop classes from our schools. And we have a generation of kids today that know how to do nothing in their homes. They, they have no fix-it skills. And that's another part of human, human learning is hands-on. How do I, if there's a problem with my plumbing, how do I know when I can fix it? And how do I know when maybe I need to call a plumber? 
And there's a lot of problems that kids can fix in their homes if they know how to use the tools and they know how to problem solve that, um, you know, I, I don't take for granted. <laughs> and I don't think anybody in this country should take it for granted. And some of those kids are amazing inventors and designers. And that's where a lot of the fuel of America um, has come from people that are hands-on inventors and, and uh, builders and engineers. And so, you know, I think that, that restoring that to our schools is going to equip kids far more for this century and the work they're going to be doing in the rise of the smart machine, including the opportunity to work with other people, to learn how to collaborate or to socialize around a cafeteria table or to work in a, uh, a maker lab and, and have a team of people who are all trying to problem solve how to do something with a, uh, an Arduino powered car or to build a, uh, a box. I had a kid one time, a third grader that was building a box in one of our elementary schools, a rural elementary school. And the, the principal said, this kid has learned, Pam, more about math from building this box that he wants in his house, in his room at home to put his stuff in it because he has no place to put his stuff. And what this principal said to me is, it's been amazing to watch him learn how to use rulers and fractions and to square up his box. So I asked this kid, I said, how do you know if your box is a good box? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, you know, it's a good box if it's sturdy enough that it will hold the things you need and it won't fall apart. That's how you know. And I was like, okay, <laughs> it's not on a test. But that's, that's kind of the work that, that, you know, we've been trying to do um, systemically. And we have small stories and we have big stories. And we've tried to tell those stories because we've had people say to us, you inspire us to think about what's possible. We had um, a, uh, uh, one of the folks that was second in command at the New York Hall of Science brought a team down to see some of our schools. And he made the comment to us as he was walking one of our high schools. And he said, you know what? These kids are being so well prepared, whether they're going to work or whether they're going to college or whether they're just going out in life for a gap year. But if you look at this, this is a great school in terms of the capability for kids to transition into adulthood. It doesn't look like 12th grade does not look like ninth grade does not look like fifth grade. You know, these kids are really growing up inside the school. He said, this is what I call Albemarle County is the antidote to yeah, but, and I loved that. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Yeah, the, the name of the book, again, is Timeless Learning, How Imagination, Observation, and Zero-Based Thinking Change Schools. And Pam, you were nice enough to let me preview a couple chapters, and I just want to tell our listeners, this is a wonderful book. And I, I can't imagine how long it took you to write it, and I, you probably had folders and pages and pages of notes that you had to go back through over the years to kind of remember the process, because probably the greatest compliment I can give another superintendent is not only did you lead innovative change, but at times you made it look so easy. And we know that's not the case. It's not. It is, you know, I, I love Dave Culberhouse, who has uh, also is one of the uh, folks that, that I interact with pretty routinely, who talks about how do you educate kids for the VUCA world? The, you know, that today's world is volatile, it's uncertain, it's complex, and it's ambiguous. And it strikes me that, um, educating kids to enter a world that feels that way um, and behaves that way is not easy. It's very complex. It doesn't happen overnight. There are no recipes. John Hunter, who worked in Albemarle County for years, 
and is the uh, the author of a simulation called the World Peace Game. That's he was a uh, voted the, the, I think, best TED Talk of the year somewhere around 2011 or 12. Um, real deal TED Talk out in California, the real deal TED Talk. But John had a, uh, was, had the Pentagon reach out to him. He was working in a fourth grade class in Albemarle, and uh, he has a, a video up that's uh, called World Peace Game and Other um, Achievements of Fourth Graders or something like that. Um, but we went up to the Pentagon at Leon Panetta's invitation and took his team of fourth graders that were working on the World Peace Game to spend time with three and four star generals and policymakers and communication folks in the Pentagon. And they weren't interested in what I had to say. And they really, you know, they loved John, but they, what they were really interested in is how do fourth graders solve problems that are thrown at them real time, whether it's a climate issue or a conflict or a water shortage or whatever it was that John would pitch out to them. And these kids represented countries and, you know, UN positions and uh, the World Bank and so forth and so on. And you know what the Pentagon was after? They said, we think we've got to learn to think more like fourth graders in response to the problems that get thrown at us than the people we are today. And one guy said to me, he said, I wish every kid in America was getting to play this game. It takes about six weeks to play it. Because in this world, there are no standard problems with standard solutions today. Everything is non-standard. And what these kids are doing is generating non-standard solutions. And that's why we want to learn from them. I thought that was wild. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it happened in today's Pentagon, but it was pretty cool to go along with the kids and they all got to meet Leon Panetta. And, and one of the kids asked him, said, what do you think the biggest problem is facing the Pentagon today and or the United States? And he said, um, interestingly enough, climate change. That was fascinating to the kids yeah, because they expected them to talk about something that was war related. Yeah. These kids read, one of the books that they read as they were playing this game is The Art of War. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, so that's, anyway, that's a cool experience. As we wrap yeah. things up, Pam, again, thanks for being here. It was wonderful to catch up with you. I wish you nothing but the best, not only in retirement, but uh, with your, your new, um, some of the new challenges you're going to, to face. I know you're out there speaking uh, to different folks. I know you're doing consulting work. And I know you also have a new job as executive director of the Virginia School Consortium for Learning. So you're going to be leading some PD as well. Yeah, and I, I'm encouraging people, follow the consortium. It's at SCL underscore VA. And we're trying to build a professional learning network in there um, to uh, link uh, people all over Virginia, some who are in very tiny systems in Southwest Virginia with the world. And so we would love to have uh, folks join us. And Greg, it's been a delight to be with you. And, and I certainly hope that um, uh, this will be informative. But the most important thing is that you know, the work that you're doing to create a national narrative around contemporary educational um, change is so important. And I just appreciate the chance to join you today and to possibly add some value to your work because you are a person who's informing the nation uh, through the interviews that you do. So thank you. Well, thanks for all you do. And folks, get out and buy the book because Pam Moran is the real deal. She's been doing it for a long time and she can lead your school to the next level. So thanks again to all of our listeners out there. And as always, do what you can in your school and community. 
to create better schools for kids. Thank you.